Мамой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце наше... Well, hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. As you well know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. And you'd, if you like this podcast, please take a moment to become a patron, a monthly subscriber of sorts, and go to the podcast Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website srbpodcast.org and find that button up in the right-hand corner and uh, help us out and pitch in some money every month. So, uh, Margaret, Rusana, we have an interview this week with Bridget O'Keefe about Esperanto and its relationship to revolutionary Russia. Um, so, Margaret, why don't you go ahead and introduce Bridget? Sure. Bridget O'Keefe is a professor of history at Brooklyn College. She's the author of New Soviet Gypsies, Nationality, Performance, and Selfhood in the Early Soviet Union. Her new book is Esperanto and Languages of Internationalism in Revolutionary Russia, published by Bloomsbury. O'Keefe is currently finishing up another book, The Multi-Ethnic Soviet Union and Its Demise. It's due out in fall 2022 with Bloomsbury's Russia Shorts book series. Here's Bridget O'Keefe. So Bridget, it's really nice to talk to you. Um, and, you know, you have your second book out. Uh, are you surprised that you wrote a second book? I'm not surprised that I wrote a second book in the, in the sense that I really actually enjoy writing and I like writing books. And I'm one of those people who actually don't find it to be a trauma or a kind of painful, <laughs> a painful enterprise. If anything, I spend most of my days wishing I had more time to devote to writing. So I, I so so are you already on your third I have a third book that is coming out in October of this year. It's coming out with the um, new Russian shorts book series that is edited by Stephen Norris and Eugene Avrutin. And it's uh, what is called the multi-ethnic Soviet Union and its demise. And the, the purpose is to in like um, a general, but also accessible and concise format, explain uh, to the world, right, how and why ethnic politics were fundamental to the Soviet experience and how and why ethnic politics were inscribed into the Soviet state and how it played into the Soviet Union's ultimate coming apart at the end. Wow. Oh, well, we'll definitely have to have you back for that. Um, it's a... <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be a repeat offender. I'm... Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a very... People, people are very interested in this stuff, uh, ethnicity and stuff. And, you know, you are one of the, one of the go-to people now, so... You know, but you have this new book. It's called Esperanto, the Languages of Internationalism in Revolutionary Russia. And your first book, which dealt with questions of nationality and ethnicity, specifically around Roma. How did you get from Roma to Esperanto? Well, first, I would say if you're looking for an obvious straight line from Roma to Esperanto, you'll probably be looking for the rest of your life. <laughs> Ultimately, I'm someone who's like trying always to not be bored. And so what I'm like, where I'm most comfortable and most happy is chasing the zigzag and like taking, taking myself where the curiosity draws me. But I will say that even while I was like a grad student working on my Roma project, which was my dissertation that became my first book, I already had in my mind that 
if the opportunity presented itself, I would be fairly geeked out to undertake a project of the history of Esperanto and late Imperial Russia and the early Soviet Union. And in all of my projects and all of like my research projects, there's usually some kind of like personal element or some kind of personal dose of curiosity that kind of sets me on the chase for thinking about like the, how, how this piece of individual curiosity can help me to understand Russia or the Soviet Union in a broader way. And in terms of like what the, those like pieces of individual curiosity were, I'd say there's two things that drove me to the Esperanto project. One is that when I was a graduate student at NYU in like my early days trying to devour and to consume all of this literature for my comps, I used to go to a little cafe, a humble like nondescript cafe right in the right in Greenwich Village, and it was called Esperanto, Esperanto Cafe. And so, so whenever like my thoughts would, you know, get distracted from the page of whatever essential landmark text I was supposed to be consuming, I would just kind of, you know, think about these Esperantists and think about what had inspired this random cafe in the first place. And it, and, you know, the story appeals to me on a number of levels, right? One, I do like to write about and to research understudied peoples. But in addition to this, uh, and we can talk about this more when we talk about some of the other topics that are at the heart of the book, but Esperanto was fundamentally a epistolary enterprise, right? The whole way in which this project takes off is because ordinary people all over the world decide to take up pen and paper and to buy, you know, moderately priced postage. And they just start writing letters to one another in this novel international language. And if anyone like who knows me and knows me well, right, there's something that I really love. And that's like the, the lost and dying art of personal written correspondence. I am a, an ardent and passionate defender of snail mail and writing letters to loved ones. Also, as a historian, my favorite type of primary source is, you know, personal correspondence. So there were all of these kind of elements to Esperanto, right? Like it's this it's a topic that's mostly written off. It's mostly forgotten if it's remembered at all. And it was a project that seemed to be animated by a certain type of person that um, on this on this one fundamental level kind of made an almost intuitive sense to me. We've had many conversations over the years that we've known each other. And uh, I do remember at some point, and I can't pinpoint where, you said you said that you you really like to research kind of weird and obscure topics. Um, and Esperanto is certainly one of them. Roma, I, I, you know, I won't say that that's an obscure topic, but, you know, in terms of the academic kind of literature, it's kind of on the margins, you know, marginal people, as you said, little people as a historian, you know, not specifically as a Soviet historian. I mean, we'll get to that later, but as a historian, why is it important to illuminate these obscure, you know, movements, people, topics, whatever. What is it? What does it give you in a sense of your understanding of, of history of a place and a time? So first, I will say this does sound like something that would come out of my mouth. And I'm sure I've said it right. <laughs> but I would also correct and kind of take this public moment to say like the descriptor of weird, probably more oh, it should be more rightfully applied to me. And I own it rather happily. Um, but but in terms of obscure, I think actually, the, as you kind of expanded on the question, it actually got to the heart of like kind of things that really excite me as a historian and as a writer. And to think about um, people who have been considered or dismissed to the margins of history, dismissed to the footnotes, if they kind of register at all, right? 
Um, the first two books that I've written have been primarily about people that have been dismissed to add-ons, right? Like they're kind of like written off as in one-liners if they enter into kind of histories of modern Europe or world history at all. And I have fundamentally consider myself as a social historian. And I take very seriously the kind of logic that every single human being um, not only has historical agency, but has a story that's worth telling. And ultimately, the challenge is for the individual historian to kind of figure out what productive questions can be asked about all different types of people and to how we can be, um, how we can kind of investigate these obscure, dismissed, marginal lives in history and how we can allow them to speak to their larger eras, to their milieus, to their specific contexts. And one of the reasons why I find this so intellectually rewarding is not because you know, it means that I sell lots of books, right? I find it intellectually rewarding because what happens when you do this is that you realize that people who have been shunted to the margins and shunted to the footnotes were actually not marginal to their era, were not marginal to their time, were not marginal to their societies in that kind of sense that people really assume, right? Esperanto, if ever, right, it shows up in um, histories about late 19th or early 20th century Europe or world history generally, it is, it's almost kind of like the butt of a joke, right? It's dismissed as a failure and it's like this little emblem of global mindedness in a quaint and earlier time. But I think what I've really tried to do in this book is to take seriously Esperanto, but even more so to take seriously the ordinary people all over the world who invested this movement with their energy and with their imagination and who took it on and who gave it life. And when you do that, when you actually treat your historical subjects with some dignity and you take them seriously, it's actually not terribly difficult to move them from a few footnotes into a kind of center of an analysis. And they do allow you to see not only right, the specifics of the Esperanto movement, which might be inherently interesting to some, if not to others, but I do fundamentally believe, and I argue that the Esperantists allow us to appreciate broader dimensions of this kind of larger moment in particularly European history. And they allow us to appreciate something about Russian and even early Soviet history that I don't think we've fully appreciated yet. Everything you said makes, it, it really resonates. I mean, I that's the only way that I understand Esperanto is kind of as this kind of, uh, idealized dream from once upon a time whenever everyone thought that the world could be a beautiful place or something. Just, yeah, uh, not really taken seriously. It's also kind of striking to me, you know, that especially those of us who, you know, are particularly excited about Russian Soviet history. Um, there's a kind of instinct that some people have, right, consciously or not, to kind of like dismiss utopian projects, right? It's like, they're destined to fail. It's just a bunch of, you know, weirdos that kind of are attracted by these destined to fail projects. And I do think that that is not just dismissive and, and unfair, but it's a kind of easy way out of missing out and understanding the, the history that supposedly, you know, excites us. Esperanto was a utopian project born in an era of just blooming utopian projects, um, utopian projects that were devised and jumped onto by people who realized and who were thinking very seriously about the kind of world as being 
increasingly entangled and interconnected, but also racked by all kinds of divisions and conflicts that they, some of them hoped they could help to forestall or to heal or to whatever else it may be. But I mean, I think that the idea that the world never did adopt a universal auxiliary language known as Esperanto, thereby means that it's not worth investigating or thinking about at all. It's a fundamentally a historical position to make, but I think that it's, it's, you know, it's part and parcel of some people's willingness to just dismiss outright failed utopian projects in general. Yeah. And reflects also on our own ideological boundaries, you know, be it capitalism or Americanism or whatever. But can you talk a little bit more about Esperanto? Like, what is it? I mean, we know that it started in the late 1800s. What is it? Sure. This is a good question. We should start here. Um, Esperanto is, as it was billed and as it was advertised and it was offered to the world by its creator, is an international auxiliary language. And what that means is that it was a novel language created by one man, an otherwise obscure eye doctor living in the Pale of Settlement in late Imperial Russia, who was trying to come up with a good answer to a question at the time that actually was occupying the minds of lots of people, not only in Imperial Russia, not only in Europe, but throughout the world. If we live in a world in which we're increasingly entangled and we're globalizing or we're becoming more international, if internationalization is the kind of uh, operating mode of our day, then we're probably going to need to figure out some kind of practical mechanism whereby human beings all over the world who speak a variety of different native languages can actually effectively and efficiently communicate. So the same era that birthed Esperanto birthed a whole kind of array of novel and competing so-called international language projects. Now, Esperanto might be remembered as a failure, that's debatable, but among the, among the different international language projects that were com competing in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Esperanto was far and away the most popular and the most embraced and the most kind of vibrant and vital of these international language projects. There's one other aspect of the language itself and its design and its purpose that I really think that we need to lay out and explain from the get-go. And that is um, its creator's description of Esperanto as an international auxiliary language. The focus here being on auxiliary. Um, the creator of Esperanto, someone named uh, Ludwig Zamenhof, he understood not only that he was living in a time of galloping globalization, but also that he was living in a time of kind of rising and increasingly militant nationalism. And he knew that among the kind of predictable types of skeptics that might arise to any international language project, that there would be those who would think, right, like, how dare you suggest I adopt an international language and trounce or spit upon my own very dear constitutive native national language. So he was anticipating that fear. He was also kind of purposely thinking about something else, which I'll return to in a minute. So the idea behind an international auxiliary language was that Esperanto was never intended to replace or efface people's native, we might call them national languages. It was designed to be everyone's second language or third or fourth, because of course, if you think about the kind of part of the world that Zamenhof himself came from, there was a kind of 
native multilingualism for a lot of people, including for himself. But the idea of auxiliary was it was an additional language that everyone was going to have to do a little bit of work to learn to make the world not only a place that was like intelligible to all of its constituent members, but a better world. And this is the last kind of bit that I really want to make sure that we understand from the get-go about Esperanto. Zamenhof, Esperanto's creator, began and ended and always returned to the preposition that an international language could never be one of the world's already existing national languages. Like if we were to dig him up unceremoniously today and show him our world of unrepentant global English, a man would be heartbroken. And he'd be heartbroken for a number of reasons. But the heartbreak kind of derives from a kind of fundamental kind of philosophical positioning that he built into this language that he created um, called Esperanto. And his idea was that if an already existing language and a national language that was already native to at least some or maybe many of the world's peoples was adopted or used as an international language for international affairs, that that would always leave humanity caught up in these webs of linguistic hierarchy, right? That you, the people who were not native speakers of a so-called international language that was just a kind of retrofitted or repurposed already existing national language would always replicate the kind of ethnic, cultural, civilizational hierarchies that he already saw as polluting humankind's capacity to make the place, the world a better place. And so he, he, he speaks a lot, he wrote a lot about the idea that if everyone is required to do at least a little bit of work to learn this additional language that we all understand is like a special international auxiliary language, then when we speak it and when we communicate using it, we are all operating on the same equal plane, right? No one's above, no one's below, right? No one's fluent, no one's embarrassed, right? There's no red faces, there's no dominance, right? This was his, his idea, whether or not it actually, you know, works this seamlessly in practice. There's an anti, there's an anti-colonial element here. There is, and there's also, there's a deeply, there's a deeply humane element built into the whole, to the whole project that speaks to the kind of larger vision that Zamenhof had for this. He never, he never thought of his creation, which he offered up to the world very humbly in the format of a cheaply produced pamphlet that was published in Warsaw in 1887. Um, he never intended, even if he may have advertised it as such early on, he never intended this language to just serve as a kind of practical utility. It was designed, he intended for it to allow people to communicate, but he also wanted to, to transform people. He, he wanted it to transform how human beings related to one another and thought about one another. And ultimately, the way I understand Esperanto, and one of the reasons why it, and it continued to captivate me the more I learned about it, is that it's fundamentally a vision of trying to promote empathy, right? It's, it's, a, it's a kind of empathetic vision. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask for context. Did you, uh, was there an international language at the time, like the equivalent to what English is today? There wasn't. So there's the, the kind of search for an effective international language predates the emergence of Esperanto in 1887, right? I think in many ways, some searches for a more effective or a more humane international language still captivate 
people today. But if one were to write, and I wouldn't be the person to write it, a larger kind of human history of these various attempts to devise a workable international language. Um, this is a kind of centuries-long project in which a wide variety of different, really interesting historical characters play their part, and Zamenhof is just one. And there's also like different ways in which different proponents of different international uh, language projects have thought of the question itself, right? Like Zamenhof, as for him, Esperanto, as I was explaining, was never just about like facilitating efficient communication. He wanted it to revolutionize humankind. He wanted it to change people's psychology. He wanted it to make the world, you know, a place where human beings looked at one another and saw not races or ethnicities or religions or above and below. He wanted it to allow people to look at their fellow human beings and see other human beings. But other kind of proponents of different international language projects, some of them were thinking in very kind of finite and practical terms. In a world in which we're trying to come up with all kinds of solutions to humankind's dilemmas, what's the most efficient, practical way to transmit and to share scientific expertise and all kinds of things. And then there are some people, right, like I think almost anyone who participated in the search for, you know, a workable, the best international language problem that would solve the manifold problems of a world that speaks all different types of languages. I mean, some of this was just about people who were like, if we're going to be honest about it, kind of language nerds, right? Like they love to play with languages and think through languages. And I mean, Zamenhof himself was a total um, language nerd, but he was a language nerd who was like motivated by like a, a wide array of kind of larger and for him really pressing ideological concerns. Hey everybody, Sean here. I hope you enjoy listening to this interview with Bridget O'Keefe on Esperanto and Revolutionary Russia. Our job here at the SRB podcast is to mix up narratives, question assumptions, and even shed light on the more obscure, marginal, and forgotten moments of Eurasian history. So this is a show that is a service. And like most services, you only see, and in this case, hear the end result. A lot goes into making this show. Time, the efforts to bring the best audio quality, the editing, etc. And all of this is done behind closed doors. And what's behind closed doors costs money. Money for software, equipment, hosting the podcast, and of course for Rusana and Margaret's time and skills. So if you really like what you hear on this podcast and you value it as a service, then please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. That's patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. Or you can also go to the srbpodcast.org website and hit that Patreon button and become a monthly patron of this podcast. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. Well, let, let's, ta let's talk about this Zamenhof character because <clears throat> here he is, 1880s. And 1880s is a period in which um, languages are... are being created, uh, you know, or consolidated or standardized, right? And here you can go from French on the one hand to Hebrew on the other hand. Um, and, and languages are also being rediscovered for nationalist purposes. So here he is in this kind this context, particularly, you know, where he is in the world in Poland, uh, where a bunch of it's a multi-ethnic, multilingual uh, environment. So who was this guy and, 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 what inspired him? Well, Zamenhof is one of the most fascinating people I've ever spent some time in my life studying. And one of the first things I would emphasize is that 
Were it not for the fact that he offered to the world something that there were a lot of people who found kind of possibility in, he probably would have remained otherwise a relatively obscure and unknown ordinary guy off in the kind of multi-ethnic, multi-confessional and multilingual Western borderlands of Lazarus empire in crisis. But um, Zamenhof, uh, the way he always talked about the origins of his project and the origins of his dream of creating this international auxiliary language that he thought had real possibility to revolutionize the whole world and to make it a better place for everyone. I mean, his dream was rooted in a very specific time and a very specific place, but a very specific and a very personal sense of political anguish and a political anguish as a Jewish subject of the Tsarist empire in particular. Um, Zamenhof in the 1890s and in the early 20th century started to grow more comfortable telling some of his interviewers. More and more people paid attention to this like growing movement of Esperantists. He grew more comfortable with kind of drawing what for him was always a straight line between his kind of personal uh, politics and his philosophical anguish as a Jewish subject of the Tsarist empire, where he felt, right, from his earliest days as a child, all throughout his adulthood, like the structural pangs, the structural limitations, the structural humiliations, but also the personal kind of like everyday Cotodian humiliations of anti-Semitism in in the Tsarist empire. He was thinking, right, like, we have to find some way to solve a few questions at once, right? Like if we want to have a good world, there's an opportunity here to solve a few questions at once. One of them was one of the questions that we talked about already, this international language question that we've forgotten about, but that was very much going on in his time. Um, the other question is the Jewish question, right? What, 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 what are the best prospects or the best hopes for Jews, not just in Russia, but all over Europe and all over the world, who are increasingly feeling the pangs and the limits and the humiliations, um, not just of structural or everyday anti-Semitism, but feeling further and further and more precariously pinned in by this anti-Semitism in states that are thinking of themselves in more and increasingly militant national terms. So Zamenhof will eventually, right after the project takes takes off, he'll say quite explicitly, the people I had in mind first when I devised this language and I devised this project were my own Jewish people. If ever a people in the world needed the benefits or the potential of what I hope Esperanto can offer the offer the world, um, it's my Jewish people. And after he publishes his original pamphlet advertising the language, explaining how it works and trying to get the movement off the ground. He will in 1901 publish a separate essay. It's like um, actually an extended essay. It's like a tract. And he publishes it under a pseudonym, but it's called Hillelism. And in this, in this project, right, the subtitle of which is a solution to the Jewish question, he makes the argument that um, there's, a, there's a kind of discernible pathway for a future world whereby Jews are the pioneers in the creation of what can very realistically become a global moral community driven by a universalist and very humane ethics made possible by an international auxiliary language and ding, 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 he's made one, right? Esperanto, right? Um, That 
that that Jews can be the pioneers of the they can help establish right a humane universally or like a, a humane global community um, built on empathy, built on mutual intelligibility and mutual respect among all peoples, to which they can invite the rest of the world's peoples to ultimately join. So <laughs> he called this Hillelism, but he, he was very clear, right? First, who needs most, right, to find and establish for themselves a kind of spiritual refuge? Jews, right? because I myself, Zamenhof, I, I hid in a cellar in 1881 as my whole city erupted in anti-Semitic violence, all of these things. But but the, let, me, let me break in here because then, so what, why not Zionism? Okay, so when he was, <laughs> I think first of all, right, some of this is that for, Zamenhof did sometimes, I mean, he's a very passionate individual, but he did sometimes kind of oversimplify in his own mind. I do think that he actually believed this, but for me, it seems like an oversimplification, right? He tied back all of the problems in humanity, right? Like all of the different ways in which humans have chosen and decided to divide themselves and to kind of put themselves in conflict and in fundamental antagonisms with one another. In his mind, it all boiled down to an inability to actually speak with one another and speak with one another in this humane, humane and equal terms. So, but, but Zamenhof, as a young man, had flirted with all of the, you know, other competing solutions to the Jewish question, right? Like when he was in college, he, you know, attended meetings uh, like a proto-Zionist movement. Um, uh, he wrote an essay also under a pseudonym when he was a young man, kind of arguing that the Jews of the Russian Empire desperately needed to get out of there because there was going to be no salvation for them. It was never going to be a good place for, for Jews. And he proposed, you know, locating a kind of uninhabited territory along the Mississippi River and maybe creating a, a Jewish homeland there. Like he he's, you know, in his in his youth, he was like exploring and flirting with all of these different, you know, possibilities. But the experience, right, of 1881 really did actually kind of radicalize him. When he, when he, like, when his family ultimately came out of their Warsaw cellar, right, after the whole thing had been done and the Jewish quarter was all ravaged. I mean, he was, he was anguished, but he was also just in a rage, in absolute outrage. And he, he was thinking, like, Zionism, you know, finding some other alternative territory, you know, in Mississippi or wherever. These are all half measures, Right. If Jews, if Jews want emancipation, they're going to have to figure out a way to emancipate not only themselves, but the whole world. So Esperanto, right, for Zamenhof, first was going to give Jews, like himself, right, trying to find out a kind of better way to create a better world, was going to give them this kind of motive and this method, this mechanism for starting to create a new global community. But they weren't going to keep it to themselves. They were going to kind of refashion the world. This is someone who is not a Marxist at all. But it, I have always been struck by the kind of the rhyming with which some of his some of his visions with the, with a with a later vision of of, of Russian history. Um, and his 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 idea was right. This is going to. I'm never going to see it in my own lifetime. I'm never going to see it. This is going to take a long time. But the first step is to get people to be able to communicate with one another. And again, under these conditions where there are not those who are inherently advantaged and those who are inherently disadvantaged. And it and the other kind of dimension of this, thinking of it as, as an ethical project and as a kind of 
emancipatory project. That idea, right, again, of it being an auxiliary language, we're all going to have to do a little bit of work to make the world a better place. We're all going to have to do a little bit of work to learn an additional language. I mean, that was supposed to do another type of work. It was supposed to kind of like make people consciously aware that they were, you know, participants in, in trying to create not just new types of human relations, like a new type of psychology, a new type of thinking about fellow human beings. Um, so for, for Zamenhof, uh, I mean, in this way, I, th I think of him as like this extraordinary exemplar of how like three big, three big kind of broader currents of the age are like being channeled and interwoven by this one, you know, extraordinary kind of extraordinarily ordinary human being and like this inventive and um, creative way, right? Like he's engaging with the the Jewish question. He's engaging with this international language question. But I also see him as, you know, inescapably like tied to this larger intelligentsia ethos of late Imperial Russia, where there's all these different people trying to like scheme and daydream for ways to not only save Russia, but, you know, many of these visions were, of course, also like, how do we save Russia so that we can save save the world. And if anyone, the few people who might be motivated to actually look at the book, right, one of the, um, the kind of uh, scholars in our field who I think really spoke to me as I was working about the, it, on this project, and like really, I think, got Zamenhof in this way, even if it wasn't his, you know, the focus of his research was, was Richard Stites when he talked about late Imperial Russia as like a time of this like fertile and like very fervent social daydreaming, like all of these, you know, anguished people, anguished in different ways, of course, but like searching for solutions to like domestic local problems, but also like hitching those solutions to visions of saving and emancipating the whole world. There's this Jewish guy trying to emancipate Jews and <laughs> with this using like by way of this auxiliary language, how did people receive that? You know, what was the reception of Esperanto like and how did his Jewishness factor into that? So the truth is, is that um, people all over the world, when they learned about Esperanto, if they were predisposed to be interested in the project or, or whatever the case may be, right, like by personality reasons or political reasons, ideological reasons, they were drawn to it for, you know, a world of reasons. People were drawn to it for its like practical or logistical possibilities, right? Like, hey, an international auxiliary language that's supposedly easy to learn, this can like, make it easier for you to meet it and make profits in a global market. Catholics were like, oh, hey, an international auxiliary language, we can convert more people. Um, but there was, in terms of like, just about like every, on every rung of the ideological spectrum of the late 19th and early 20th century, there were people who, who looked at the language and thought, wow, this is like some like incredible tool that we might use to advance our distinct and oftentimes entirely at odds uh, ideological um, campaigns or missions. But what was, what is, and it will always be more interesting to me, was like the real life force of the Esperanto movement, which is just like ordinary educated or semi-educated people all over the world who somehow read about this, hear about this, get their hands on one of the pamphlets because he made a kind of great heroic aggressive effort to have this pamphlet translated into all of these different languages and went broke doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but like ordinary people who whose just imaginations were totally alighted by the prospect of communicating with the world. And, um, you know, thinking like if you think about 
if you think about this time, right, the late 19th and early 20th century, and if you think about it especially, this was another kind of work that was really kind of crucial for me in trying to understand the Esperanto movement um, is Holly Case's brilliant book, The Age of Questions, right? Like this being a kind of time all over the world where like chattering classes or just curious people were like caught up, right, in all of these kind of, um, you know, anguished debates of life and death questions that seem to be in need of urgent solutions. But also like the other reason why I find this era in Esperantists in particular, ordinary Esperantists, so kind of interesting and fascinating is just, and this connects to something we were talking about earlier about like how it's kind of makes me so sad when people dismiss utopian projects, right? One of the reasons why I find Esperantists so interesting is because they seem to represent an era of kind of like runaway imaginative possibilities that I wish existed in my own time. Like we're so kind of like cynical and like, you know, in in the here and now. But if you go back and listen and pay attention to like ordinary people who are dreaming and scheming and trying and experimenting, right, in all these different ways and trying to think up of solutions. I mean, I think it's like dizzying. I think I think it's exciting. It's also like instructive. Like maybe we could all benefit from having a little imagination these days. But yeah, we're so we're so focused on results rather than process in this sense. And 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 this this actually brings up one of the the things that I find really fascinating about. Um, I mean, I think you know this falls with both your books, and that is this notion of grassroots internationalism. You know, most of the time when we talk about internationalism, particularly in the Soviet context, we're thinking of this very like top down, you know, common turn or you know whatever the Soviet state is is promoting. Um, but one of the things that I find fascinating, and I see this in some of the research I've been doing, is how the inner the the official internationalism of the Soviet project opened up spaces for people like your Esperantists to engage and connect and mingle and network with people from all over the world. So, you know, what do you mean by this? Like, give us more about this grassroots internationalism, why you see it as so important. All right. So I'm, I'm in full agreement with you, Sean. And, and here's one of the, the kind of things that I think Esperantists really do help us to see and to see better and to better appreciate. First, I think they allow us to think about internationalism in Russian and Soviet history in ways that move away from top-down analyses, that move away from um, helpful and like extraordinarily wonderful and for me very inspiring kind of studies of what we might call the governmental internationalism or institutional internationalism. And it allows us to appreciate that there were ordinary people all over late Imperial Russia and the early Soviet Union who actually were not in need of prompting from people higher up <laughs> to think about themselves as connected to a wider world. If anything, Esperantists, and I don't think they were outliers, right? They kind of jumped on like a specific mechanism or a method of trying to interact and engage with the world. But I think that they're representative of the, of the larger era. And there's this overlooked kind of impulse um, that we can see through the uh, Esperantists of ordinary people who were like eager and excited to find ways to reach out to the world, to participate the world, to network themselves into a wider world. And they certainly thought of themselves as having vested stakes in global conversations and global concerns. I think the Esperantists were in terms of a grassroots internationalism, they're kind of tangible and really creative and really remarkable, remarkable ways whereby ordinary people 
who took up this language that Zamenhof created and they gave it life. They started creating in the 18, <laughs> late 1880s and the 1890s, but it really takes off thereafter. They started creating what were real social networks that transcended not just linguistic boundaries, but state boundaries and even ideological boundaries. Their primary mechanism for communicating with one another for almost like the first two decades of the movement was by post, right? Like sending postcards, sending these heartfelt letters and all of these things. And how they did this was um, first, Zamenhof put a lot of effort into assembling um, directories where like willing Esperantists would send in their name and their address so that they could start sending letters, like, like just cold, cold calling each other. But they also like slowly but surely built up like a transnationally circulating Esperantist press. And the most fascinating segments, the most fascinating pages for me of all of these Esperantist periodicals were the classified ads. And in the classified ads, the Esperantists would make their plea, right? Like, I'm looking for a fellow Esperantist to exchange letters with, they'd put their address. But it's so, so revealing because you can see, right? You can see that like inborn, like vibrant, vital, right? Like feeling connected to the world built into how they made their plea or made their case for um, Esperantist uh, correspondence. So they'd write things like, I'm a young governess, often Rostov, right? <laughs> Something like this. And I, I, I would really like to exchange letters with Esperantists all over the world on the women's question. Or, right, I'm... I'm Yvonne in Tver, and I want to communicate with teachers all over the world about the best and new practices of good pedagogy, right? Or they would want to talk about, right, um, different kind of political projects, right? Several of them would say, like, let's debate, right? What's good about federalism? And so, like, they have all of these wide array of, like, diverse topics that they just, like, want to talk to people about, but they want to talk to people about it because they think of themselves and they think about these topics and they think about their potential correspondence all over the world is kind of linked by a common and global fate. And they're trying to have, you know, international conversations. Some of them are also like just trying to have fun and make friends and all the rest. But one of my favorite um, phrases that I would see sometimes in these classified ads was just like young, ordinary people saying, you know, I'm looking for correspondence because I'm trying to figure out my worldview. <laughs> like, like I just, I'm just like trying to figure stuff out. Like, I want to, I want to talk to people about stuff. And there was this, you know, like for them, it was natural, right? Like it was like a given that they would, they kind of had this, had this sense that like the best way I can figure out my worldview is to think about myself as a person in the world who could benefit from corresponding with people all over the world. And, you know, in the, after the revolution and under kind of Soviet circumstances, um, the ability of Esperantists, ordinary Esperantists kind of engage in, in this kind of freewheeling international correspondence is constrained by various means, but even there, right. Um, young people in the 1920s or even the early 1930s who are kind of, introduced Esperanto under Soviet conditions. I mean, also ask any Esperantist that you might encounter today, because there are still Esperantists all over the world. The kind of most exciting element of it is 
right? Being able to share ideas with people who live in a different part of the world and might see the world a different way, maybe learning from them. So um, this kind of, this, this, this Esperanto land that they created, and that's what Zamenhof called it, Esperanto land. <laughs> Esperanto land, it sounds very mystical, but Esperanto land um, in Zamenhof's mind was wherever and however Esperantists came together and communicated. And um, so it could happen in person after 1905. There's like a tradition that builds and that's still ongoing today of um, annual international Esperantist conferences. But a lot of Esperanto land um, was manifested in, in just simple correspondence that ordinary people were sending to one another all throughout the world. And they like made lifelong friends. I, I The one kind of archival collection that I was able to kind of look at and put my hands on, which was like, you know, one person's stock or kind of lifetime collection of Esperantist postcards. It was something that I looked at at the Hoover Institution archives. And it was, um, you know, someone who kind of came of age at the end of, of, of Tsarist Russia and then, you know, ultimately emigrated uh, to the West um, in the, during the tumults of the early 20th century. But it says something, right? Like it actually says something important that this person whose kind of life was like upended and shook and really had to keep kind of crossing borders and searching for safe haven in other places, like took the time and the effort to take with him in his like sparse luggage, boxes of postcards that he exchanged with like a few of his Esperantist pen pals that he had like found using these classified ad mechanisms and then kept up this correspondence throughout his whole life. It's hard not to, it's, it's hard to ignore the ties between the receptiveness of ideas and languages, these these like revolutionary concepts with the rise of Bolshevism. And I'm curious, how did Esperanto change and develop like with the fall of the Tsar Empire? And then, the you know, then you have Lenin, the 1920s, then you have you transition into Stalin, like what? Where does Esperanto fit in with, you know, the trajectory of Russian history and world history? But yeah. Yeah. Well, look, um, when when the revolutions of 1917 come, right, um, Esperantists all over Eurasia are kind of forced to contend with like the disease and for some exciting, others concerning, right, possibilities that are taking place all around them and trying to make sense with like the rapidly like shifting contours of their existence and their state and all of these things. And I will say that in like the kind of immediate revolutionary years, right, like the years of the civil war, um, the, the kind of like rare types, I mean, I did find more than I thought I would, but like the rare types of kind of like Esperantist publications that I was found that were produced in these early years of the revolution, you can kind of like see this like kind of awkward attempt to find already like this kind of, seemingly urgent need to find a way to marry the goals of Esperantism, to marry the goals of socialist world revolution. And this requires some, 
um, some like quick, quick shifts in how we could make an ideological case for Esperanto. Because on the face of it, Zamenhof's dream looks pretty darn bougie to, to, to a Bolshevik, right? So instead of saying like, let's all adopt an international auxiliary language so that we can make friends and so that we can understand one another. Esperantists um, in revolutionary Russia, they finally found their feet and pretty quickly they started making the case that you cannot have an international socialist revolution if the proletariat of the world cannot speak with one another. Like, on a very practical, uh, on a very practical way, the first argument um, we have to find like a, a common language with which the proletariat can communicate, can coordinate, can strategize, and can, can commune, so that we can actually achieve this international proletarian revolution. Now, they have a point, right? They did have a point, right? One of one one of the one of the most fine elements of this research and my favorite chapter in the book actually took me into the Comintern World Congresses, right? Because the first kind of thing that the first push push that Esperantists try to make to kind of um, ingratiate themselves and to write themselves into the Bolshevik project is to say we have this new organization, this world headquarters of communist revolution called the Comintern that's established in 1919, right? Like here you see in a very real and immediate way, the problems, right? The practical problems, but also the ethical problems of linguistic diversity in an internationalist enterprise. Because if you were, if you were an excited revolutionary who came to Moscow or to Leningrad to participate in one of these early Comintern World Congresses, and you didn't speak German natively, or you didn't speak French natively, or you didn't speak Russian natively, uh, you were kind of screwed, right? Like effectively, right? Of what, what happens for a whole lot of, um, you know, these earnest revolutionaries who come to the Mecca of world revolution to participate in these common term world congresses is that they experience it as this kind of numbing and, um, very frustrating experience of like sitting in uncomfortable chairs for hours upon hours while the strategies and visions of world revolution are being discussed in languages that they do not understand. Um, now for the Bolsheviks, they're like, yeah, maybe you have a point, but like from the Bolsheviks perspective, we're talking like the, the main, uh, the architects of the early Soviet state, there were more pressing concerns and there were more pressing issues. And Lenin and his whole cohort tended to dismiss Esperanto as most people have dismissed Esperanto um, ever since, right? Like, this is a utopian project. We don't have time for this. And so, like, the Bolshevik approach to kind of managing the um, pains and the miscommunications of these commentarial congresses was to just keep hiring more and more translators. Um, and eventually, in 1927, they experiment in one of the kind of first kind of experiments with... Um, uh, uh, models and practices of consecutive interpretation using microphones and headsets and all these things. There's like a fascinating history involved in here. But but in terms of, of the Esperantists, they spend the 1920s and the first half of the 1930s desperately trying to find new ways to make a case for the urgency and the necessity of an international language to the Bolsheviks internationalist projects. So the first time they try the common turn, they get rebuffed time and time again. And they say, well, we can um, help communicate the proletarians of the world by means of radio broadcasting and using Esperanto, which they're allowed to do. And there's like, 
actually a kind of like robust Esperanto radio programming in the early Soviet Union in the 1920s and the early 1930s. But then they kind of also lean in really heavily into what is in some ways the kind of like um, the kind of natural talents of Esperantists, right? They say, we can communicate by post with Esperantists all over the world and tell them how wonderful life under Soviet socialism is. Like we can use our correspondence to advance uh, the goals of the Bolshevik regime in this way. Like Esperantist correspondence is a kind of natural ally of like larger citizen diplomacy goals. Um, and at first, the... The Soviet state is, if anything, they're like moderately annoyed by the Esperantists who are like keep begging for more resources and more investment, which the Bolsheviks are not willing to give them. But they're tolerated. They're allowed to like chase these dreams. They're allowed to make these arguments. But there does right, come a time when there starts to see, kind of see a discernible shift that starts already during the first five-year plan. And it really gets worse for the Esperantists in the 1930s for reasons that will be obvious and expected by all of us who love Soviet history. But the idea is, um, or the suspicion that starts to kind of seep into the state's perspective on Esperantists is, well, how do we know that when you're sending all these letters abroad that you're actually saying nice things about the Soviet Union, right? Like, <laughs> and not only, not only is there like this creeping suspicion like that maybe you might not be saying nice things about the Soviet Union, but there's also, right, this like larger ideological component. Um, the Komsomol is given instructions already in 1927 or 1928, like, okay, it's fine if you Esperantists want to engage in correspondence with foreigners abroad and workers abroad, but it shouldn't be individual correspondence. You need to transition to what they call collective correspondence, right? Esperantist correspondence, if it's going to be legit, if it's going to be above the board, if it's going to be like in the interests of Soviet socialism, right? Like get the kind of Komsomol youth together, and write a collective letter on the part of your cell and, you know, spout off numbing statistics about industrial gains and achievements, right? Like boring letters. But there's, again, this is tied to this, tied to this notion that, or this kind of Soviet perspective that the type of letter writing, the type of correspondence that did excite most Esperantists both before and after the revolution from the Bolsheviks' perspective, was petty bourgeois, right? It was egotistical. It was navel-gazing, right? Like, we don't need you spending your time writing letters about, you know, your love affairs or what you think about this or that to some worker off in Vienna, right? We need you to be, right, engaging in, you know, and participating more meaningfully and more collectively in, in pursuit of a larger Soviet project. But um, so there's the concern. The con I'm sorry, Mark. Go ahead. Interesting that that this the same criticisms that that the Bolsheviks were giving to Esperanto were what the West were giving to, were saying about Bolshevism. I mean that it's un, it's not feasible that it's just idealism and it's never going to work and it's just people thinking <laughs> too much basically, people with too much time to think and try random stuff. Well, that 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 kind of leads to. That my next kind of question, and that is, you know, you are writing about a phenomena, this Esperanto, that most people, as you you said in the beginning, see as this kind of utopian naivety. Um, it's a very kind of marginal topic. Um, so, what what do you want people to take from this book of yours? 
I want people to take from this that, um, you know, so here's one of the ways I would frame it historiographically, right? There's been this big push in recent years. We all know it. We have to start globalizing Russian history. Let's put Russian his Soviet history in global perspective. And a lot of that, again, has been a kind of, um, as much as I've enjoyed this work and I've benefited a great deal from it, a lot of it has been written from a kind of top-down or more kind of institutional or kind of elite perspective, um, however we might understand the term. But I think that for me, one of the most exciting, exciting and kind of exemplary things that we can take away from the Esperantists, if we do what I said at the start of our interview, um, I think is important about social history. You can take kind of any figure, you can take up any type of person in history and you can make them speak to their age because they do, right? Almost inherently. I see Esperantists as ordinary people who didn't need to be globalized in a way, right? They were people who understood themselves in global contexts and who were eager to assert themselves on global terrains and to integrate themselves into international social networks that they helped to create. And they were eager and they found creative ways to assert themselves as participants in larger global conversations and to, um, to assert themselves as ordinary internationalists, right, who reflected, who reflected their age. I also think that they can actually help us um, appreciate a little something more about Soviet internationalism, right? Those of us who have kind of spent some time thinking um, very seriously about Soviet internationalism in these, in, in recent years, have come up time and time again with this like persistent blend of, mm. of a kind of tension between a, a xenophobia and a suspicion and kind of wariness of interacting, especially with the West, but also with like a commitment to internationalism and a curiosity and a kind of need, right? Like even seem kind of need to engage with the rest of the world. Um, but I think that if we're studying Soviet internationalism or any other type of internationalism, we really do ourselves a disservice by taking for granted that all the language problems that come about <laughs> anytime you assemble or have interactions or collaborations among in an international setting, we do ourselves a disservice by like just taking for granted that people found convenient, neat and easy ways to communicate. Um, even if for the elements of this book that do think about Soviet internationalism from a very status perspective, they're oriented towards trying to kind of prod the field take seriously the politics of language and how it fed into um, the Soviet state's approach to thinking about its, its engagement of the world. So one of the kind of takeaways, for example, that I see from, you know, the language politics of the common turn and also um, the language problems that the Stalinist states encountered during industrialization in the 1930s was that it helped to kind of pr prompt or help to kind of um, push, right, or establish the seeds or the roots of what we will say later see, especially in the Cold War period, as this more aggressive um, Soviet pursuit of establishing the Russian language as a world language. And this is a project that um, Rachel Applebaum at Tufts is like doing really exciting work about right now. And I can't wait to read the whole book. But um, so I think there's a few things, right? Like I, I again, my, I, as the, as the way this interview has gone, right? Like my heart ultimately beats and thumps for the ordinary Esperantists and what the, they can tell us about ordinary people's creative internationalism. But I also think that there's, you know, I hope, right? Like, um, there's an attempt here that I hope people will pay attention to, a kind of like methodological need, but also a historical need to pay attention to the messiness 
and the politics of of language. Earlier on in the interview, you mentioned that es- there are Esperantists still around today. So who is the ordinary Esperantist today? <laughs> well, that's a good question. So the ordinary Esperantists today are, are a diverse lot, just like the ordinary Esperantists of old. But Esperanto is in many ways alive and well in 2022. Maybe not as um, vast a movement as it was in the late 19th and early 20th century. We we dismiss Esperanto as a failure, which means that we like overlook the fact that in the early 20th century, it was actually like a huge, big deal. Um but they, some of the um, original kind of international Esperantist organizations that were created um, in the early part of the 20th century are still alive and well today. And they still host annual international um, meetings of Esperantists. And I was just thinking this morning that, about how the annual conference of leftist Esperantists was scheduled to meet in July of 2022 in Moscow. And I'm not sure now how that's going to happen, but um, that's another conversation. Um, but the other- So are they in Russia? Where are they? Oh, there's, 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 there are Esperantist societies and Esperantist unions all over the world, right? So there is um, an Esperanto society that's still up and running in Moscow. There's an Esperantist group in New York City that meets, right? Like the pandemic has dampened some of these affairs, but we've all- um, had to deal or like accommodate or adjust using Zoom. Um, but the other thing that I would say in terms of the, like, the vibrance or the vitality of Esperanto in the current day is that, um, you know, many of us and a lot of children these days, right, like they learn and uh, we learn and practice or, you know, experiment with languages using Duolingo. And Duolingo for a long time, for many years, has had um, a component that allows people to to learn and practice Esperanto. So I think in some ways, like the internet is, in, in some ways, like the internet itself more broadly is a kind of like fertile, fertile ground for- Esperanto. Yeah, for like more, you know, novel, more recent types of Esperanto social networks. But there are still, there are still, there are still vibrant Esperanto communities all over the world. And finally, do you know the language? Have you tried to learn it? I have tried to learn it. I do not consider myself an Esperantist, nor do I consider myself an Esperanto speaker. But obviously, for the purposes of this project, um, I did need, I had a real need of being able to use uh, Esperanto sources, even if they weren't my main sources. And so I taught myself um, basic reading uh, fluency in Esperanto by two mechanisms, one of which was using Duolingo. And the other, I used um, a kind of like classic self-study textbook that not only helped me to kind of master the grammar basics of Esperanto, but really kind of like immersed me in very outdated gender norms. <laughs> so, so I much, I much preferred the Duolingo approach to to learning Esperanto. But, um, but no, I don't. I've, I've, you know, I've never, I've never even attempted a conversation in Esperanto. If you, if you could compare it to a language, what language would you compare it to in terms of what it sounds like, what the grammar or whatever, the script? I don't know. All right. So this is one thing that we didn't talk about, but even just on the face of it, it is a very obviously a kind of Euro, it's Eurocentric by design. 
what he did was like he what Zamenhof did was like he mixed together. He kind of like in his own novel way, he took nuts and bolts from like the Romance languages, also German, English, a little bit of Latin, a little bit of Greek. He created like 900 root words, um, designed the language to kind of run and grow on the basis of like these affixes and then let people kind of create the language and build the language as they went. So what I would say, so the easiest way to understand what like Esperanto looks like or sounds like is if you know someone who is, you know, fluent in three or four European languages and you present them with an Esperantist text, they will understand it in a heartbeat, right? Like even, with, even without like, uh, like having studied the language in any way, like they can, they, they could look at it and figure out, uh, the meaning is what I would, how I would describe it. Has Esperanto ever spread out from the West? Yes, yes, absolutely. So this is one of the things, right? Like it, uh, you know, among its critics are those who said like the Eurocentric language, this might be an easy language to learn if you're a European, a multilingual European. And there's, 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 there's merits to these types of criticisms. But when, when I've been saying, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th century, Esperanto inspired people all over the world. I really did mean all over the world, not just like the world as Europeans talked about it in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and uh, at the same time, people all over Imperial Russia were getting excited about Esperanto. People all over Japan were getting excited about Esperanto. South America, the whole world, right? The whole world, there was, there were... It traveled, it made its way around the world, and it excited and ignited the imaginations of people all over the world. That was Bridget O'Keefe. Bridget O'Keefe is a professor of history at Brooklyn College. She is the author of New Soviet Gypsies, Nationality, Performance, and Selfhood in the Early Soviet Union. Her new book is Esperanto and the Languages of Internationalism in Revolutionary Russia, published by Bloomsbury. O'Keefe is currently finishing up another book, The Multi-Ethnic Soviet Union and Its Demise. It's due out in fall 2022 with Bloomsbury's Russia Shorts book series. We have this interview with Bridget, so I'm, I'm really curious what both of you thought of it, because, you know, Esperanto is a marginal topic. Um, it's not something we, at least I don't give much thought to in terms of its existence, let alone its history. And of course, before, you know, reading and listening to Bridget, um, I had no idea about it at all. So, um... What are some of the things you took away from it? Why don't we start with you, Rusana? I guess for me, one of the main and probably more general takeaways is um, was that passage where Bridget was talking about the dismissal of utopian projects. You know, you just mentioned that Esperanto is a very obscure topic today and perhaps sometimes it is even ridiculed as a naive attempt you know, to revolutionize international communication. Um, and so this trend to ridicule utopian projects is applicable not only to Esperanto, but to a lot of um, dreams and hopes and future-oriented projects that were people attempted, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. Um in the 19th and 20th century um and I, I, I don't know it's just it's just curious to think about the fact that on the one hand we lament the impossibility of imagining seeing any kind of future that's different from the 
you know, capitalist presentism that we're stuck in. But at the same time, when we look back and uh, hear about those projects and hopes, we dismiss them as, you know, oh, it's never going to get anywhere. But how would we be able to envision any kind of alternative future if we refuse to um, imagine something radically different? You know what I mean? And I feel like... I, sp- I, I can't remember who said this. Part of me thinks it was Slavoj Žižek, but I don't, I don't, I'm not for sure. In his, in, when he was more lucid, um, he said that it was easier to imagine the end of the world than a world beyond capitalism. And it's true, like, you know, there is a there is a loss of utopian thinking. And I think really since 1991, since the collapse of the Soviet system, and, um, you know, without, I, as you said, Rusan, without thinking about imagining something else, we're going to just, how do we move beyond what we are, right? If we can't even think of the possibility or or even conceptualize the possibility, so that's that's one of the things I also took from this Esperanto as as one of those moments where people were seriously trying to think of something beyond their present condition. How about you, Margaret? Well, it's almost like just to respond to that, it's almost like we've learned to laugh at creativity and dismiss it as just not not an option because it, we've overlearned the mistakes of the 19th and 20th century. Like this rejection of Esperanto really just reflects how like maybe potentially nationalistic the Bolshevik revolution was, or at least turned into maybe how purposefully Russian it was. I know how maybe probably many of the other Soviet countries could agree that it was very purposefully and specifically Russian. And so while theoretically Esperanto would have been a welcome aspect uh, to to the ideology of Bolshevism. Why did it not work? Is it's just hard not to be cynical when you see that, you know, <laughs> yeah, that it was never it was destined to failure, unfortunately. And so then we think that all ideas are destined to failure because the people in power are what not not actually trying to be the good things that they tell us that they are, shockingly. There definitely is this, This there is exactly that. But I also, in terms of the um, utopian aspects of Esperanto, have you ever seen, either of you ever seen Gattaca? So it's it stars Ethan Hawke. It was in like 1989. No, 1998, sorry. So the movie came out in 1998. It stars Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, and Uma Thurman. It's a dystopic eugenicist future where everyone is categorized, their genetic potential is at birth. And the Ethan Hawke character basically was a natural birth. He wasn't genetically engineered. So there's a class hierarchy based on one's genetic profile. So he has to- Is it the future of the past? Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah. But what's fascinating about this, and I only realize this because I always watch movies with um, closed captions- is that when they're in the, he's working in this like space exploration institute and over the loudspeaker, they're speaking Esperanto. So 
in in this moment you don't have a you know progressive utopia you actually have a dystopia i mean you know unless you're unless you're a eugenicist um a dystopia where the universal where esperanto functions as that universal language and i thought that was really interesting and ironic <laughs> well that 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 goes back to uh well, um, that ties, I guess, to 1984 novel, right? Where also they invented a different language that wouldn't have certain meanings because if you don't have certain meanings, you're not going to have revolts or misconduct or abuse or whatever. Um, and that brings me to my second point. Uh, I think this whole discussion of universal versus culture specific in language um, really comes out when we talk about Esperanto, right? I mean, as a linguistic anthropologist, I just learned it at school that, you know, at the time there were all these debates about what language actually is and like what kind of meaning is contained in language is language kind of like a medium where national wisdom is kind of neatly packaged and translation is not possible or like when it is possible it's very limited and we can never understand each other fully or is language you know more transparent kind of um, medium and on a certain kind of certain basic level we still are able to understand each other and convey those universal values and universal meanings right so there these are two very different conceptions of what a language is and what yeah what it contains and what it conveys and so it seems like esperanto was an attempt to kind of respond to this first hypothesis that like you know, our perception, even our cognition is shaped by our native language. And if we change the language, then we'd be able to overcome all these barriers in international communication, all these conflicts, the diplomacy will flourish, et cetera, et cetera, right? It comes from this idea that if you're a native speaker of a particular language, you will never be able to transcend your own linguistic community in a way. Yeah, that's why the Jewish component to all of this was really interesting for me to think about, like how Jews are particularly sensitive or would be to cultural power dynamics and feeling out of place. Because like you think about Tsarist Russia, when uh, Zamenhof started this 1887, I think it was, Jews weren't even allowed in metropolitan areas, still many of them. They were like forced into isolation, like they can, they're they're limited to their own cultures and practices until they have to interact with a Russian and then they have to assimilate to them. You're constantly making this internal calculation between whose culture has the upper hand, where you're going to submit in your ways or in theirs. And as Jews, it's always you. You always have to be the one to assimilate. So having a language like this, like Esperanto, was this was supposed to be this potential solution to, as, as O'Keefe said, the Jewish question. And so, yeah, yeah, the cultural aspect to it is is really fascinating. You know, it got me. It also got me thinking about right. We we have this this idea 
that, and, and Zamenhof clearly was a proponent of this, that if we all were able to communicate and share this language, this auxiliary language, universal auxiliary language, this would solve, you know, these problems, right? As both of you pointed to. And that made me think about this experience I had a few years ago. I was in Durham in a, in a, a audio documentary class for a, for a, a week. And um, we were all given projects to do. And our pro the project I had to do was to interview this guy who was involved in language justice, which I had never heard of. And essentially what they do is they provide translation services for non-English speakers, in this case, mostly Spanish speakers, for say, things like court, government services. And it, it was the first time it made me think about how important language actually is to social justice. Because how can, say, a non-English speaker access a court adequately in the United States if they don't have the ability to be heard, to communicate or understand? So I thought this was a really interesting, you know, something in terms of when we think about social justice, we, you know, language... Uh, this was the first time I actually was forced to consider language in a very serious and deep way. Um, so, so this idea that that Damenhof was trying to address in the late nineteenth century, you know, language still very much is about social justice. Right, and I think Jit um, also mentioned right, the Esperanto was an anti-colonial project right to kind of undo <laughs> the dominance of certain languages and certain communities <laughs> that happen to be native speakers of those languages you know and as you were speaking it also occurred to me that right in the 70s um language was very important for feminists right who uh, thought of language as being capable of changing material uh, ma ma materiality in which we live in, right? It's not, for example, uh, if we think about why we have these officers and not policemen, right? It goes back to this idea that if we change the language, then we can also change society. I mean, I think that I think that that idea is actually quite prevalent today, even beyond ironically, and and across the political spectrum. <laughs> there's this there is this weird thing about you know the relationship between language and materiality like if you change language do you actually change material life i mean the american in me <laughs> remembers when i travel how other english speakers you know, there's this forced humbleness that comes with having to learn someone else's language and Gotta say, I've traveled with a whole lot of people that have been very entitled not to learn the language of the place that they are in. And you can feel the difference in the way they're experiencing that place. Like, they are not there with you in the same place. Like when I was in Kazakhstan and people didn't speak Russian or Kazakh, and then we're going to these Kazakh villages and, you know, I'm trying my best to communicate. Can't say I'm doing a very great job, but... Uh, at least trying and, and what they feel and the way they talk to you and the way that you exist in that social space is so different than someone who doesn't. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And there is, there, go back to this idea of uh, Esperanto as, as, a de, uh, as an anti-colonial language. 
there is imperial arrogance in the idea of you don't feel the need to act like those people should be speaking my language and and the expectation that someone knows you know your language and being perfectly comfortable going <laughs> exactly. somewhere without even trying. Yeah. You no, know, there is an imperial to say, hubris. To even learn thank yeah. you. There's an imperial hubris beyond that. Yeah. So any final thoughts? Yeah, maybe I wanted to close with a saying. I don't remember who it belongs to, but it very eloquently summarizes our conversation uh, about imperialism and anti-colonialism. It goes, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Ah, very good. That's a, that's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rusana. That is perfect to close our discussion on. Thank you for your thoughts too, Margaret. Uh, as you well know, uh, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined, as you, you just heard Rusana and Margaret talking about, you know, some of the, what they took away from the interview with Bridget O'Keefe about Esperanto. Um, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And if you do like this podcast, if you find value in, in hearing about things like Esperanto, you know, please share the podcast on social media and spread the word. You know, drop us a line. Tell us what you think of what we're doing here, um, either on Facebook or Twitter or at srbpodcast.org. And we, of course, we and I, we've been saying this repeatedly, but maybe we need to make a better effort. We'd like listeners to send in some audio testimonials to let us know what you think. We can play them on the podcast. If You don't have to give your name if you don't want. You want to remain anonymous, but record something short. It's very easy to do. All you need is a smartphone. And you can send it to us at info at srbpodcast.org. That's info at srbpodcast.org. And of course, as always, we'd love to have your financial support. Um, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on contributions from listeners like you to help us, you know, keep the podcast going, but also try to do some new things that we've been thinking about and talking about. So um, please help us keep this podcast open, free, without advertisements. So please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or go to srbpodcast.org and click on that Patreon button. Um, until next week, bye.